Hi everyone, it's Joe here from Lawn Solutions Australia and welcome to this episode of Turf Talk where I'm joined by turf industry doyen, that's a new word for the day, and stalwart Bruce Stevens. Bruce, welcome. Hi Joe, good to be here. So for those that don't know, or I suppose for those that are in the industry you would know, Bruce has been a, a long-time member of both the seed and the turf industry in Australia, been a long-time employee manager of Anco Turf, uh, but today we're going to get into... Bruce's life in the industry because um, it's coming to an end at the end of the year permanently, uh, yeah. which is which is a, which is a big deal for you and a big deal for the industry. So, Bruce, why don't you sort of take us back to the start um, when you first came to this industry, how you came to this industry, and probably why uh, this industry appealed to you initially? Oh well, it's a long time ago, Joe. It's actually nearly fifty years in January. I'll be fifty years, but when I initially got into the seed industry, it was via uh, commencing with a bloodstock company, which was my passion at the time as a young fella. And they had a seed company attached to the bloodstock company. The uh, company in Melbourne was uh, used to conduct the yearling sales, et cetera, for the racing industry. But it really wasn't where I wanted to be in the long term. And they had the seed industry set up next to it. it, was a large seed company. And uh, I got in with them and they trained me up in uh, various forms of the seed industry, including pasture grasses, turf grasses. They had a permanent greenkeeper working for them. Yeah. Who really was my first mentor um, to teach me a bit about turf. They sent me to Queensland for two years to learn tropical grasses. Yeah. And then I went to South Australia for eight months on a research farm and also a seed cleaning plant they had there as well. So it was a really good background with that company. And from there, I went to a couple of other seed companies along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a steep learning curve. There were no institutions where you could go and learn the industry back then. Yeah. Um, the TAFE courses were just starting. Um, I finished up not going to those TAFE courses, but actually going in and teaching along the way occasionally, yeah, right. just mm-hmm. on, on an exp- from an experience point of view. Mm-hmm. So I'd go in there and talk about um, seed harvesting and cropping and certification systems, et cetera, in the seed industry yeah. and give the turf managers a, a bit of an overview on that. Right, right. And and through this journey, um, obviously you've, you've worked in all facets of the seed industry, but was sales the prominent one for you eventually, was it? Or? So, well, sales became the prominent one. In fact, most of the people within the company, even though they may have been qualified agronomists, et cetera, mm. They all had a uh, task to be salespeople. Right. So there were no uh, free rides in there. Yeah. You had to earn your keep. Yeah. And was it the, the seed sales thing that first opened you up to the racing and the sports turf Well, no, I've been going to the races since I was six with my father. Right. So I had a passion for the horse oh, racing the industry. Stock, yeah. And I went to Flemington High School. Oh, okay. Which right is on. now Racing yeah. Victoria headquarters. Yeah. They converted our high school into an office. <laughs> you would have loved it back then. <laughs> yeah, it was great because we were allowed to go down into the into the track. Yeah. Uh, once you got into the senior years there. Right. And um, not too many of us went through to the senior years at Flemington High School. It was yeah. that type of school. Yeah. Um, but I managed to. Yeah. And you just had that passion for that race course and that property. It was fantastic being in amongst the elms, being in amongst the grass. Mm-hmm. And I had a grandfather that was also a part-time greenkeeper, so. He was at Essendon Football Club and Essendon Bowling Club. Yeah. So you've had a turf and a racing connection yeah. through, through family and through your history, so it's kind of a natural 
thing for you, I guess, wasn't it, going into that that space? And yes, and was it was it always cool season seeded grasses in Melbourne at that time in Victoria at that time? There wouldn't have been a lot of warm season turf around at all, would have there? So you would have been the no. Yeah. Well, from a sales point of view, it was all cool season. Yeah. There's a tiny bit of cooch used to be put in mixes, mm. but it was rarely successful. Yeah. Because people didn't know how to how to get it going mm. back then, mm. and the fact that you needed to put it in pure. Yeah. So nearly all the seed sales were rye grass, Kentucky bluegrass, bent grass was a bit back then as well. Mm. Uh, and the newer bents were just starting to come on the scene. We're, we were initially selling products like the old seaside bent, Highland bent, uh, Victorian creeping bent grass, which we sourced from Alexander and Ballarat region. Mm-hmm. And and your job with these seeds was to sell it. Did you sell it to pretty much everyone? Was it retail and commercial or was it mainly in the sports and golf turf market? We, we, we had focused. a... Eventually, we had a packaged range for yeah. the retail market, but we didn't have any direct retail sales. They're all to the commercial market yeah. in the turf side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to nurseries and sand and soil yards was a reasonable business also back then. And and context-wise, so so when did Anco Turf come into the picture here? Was it a, a long way into your journey or did you start selling to Anco originally, did you? Or how did that connection start? Yeah, well, initially... Um, uh, my introduction into the turf industry was via seeing Instant Turf in the early, well, mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen it prior to that. It was quite astounded to see Instant Turf being yeah. laid down. But initially I uh, thought, gee, this is a competitor to us from seed sales point of view. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't to be because uh, Anko became my biggest client yeah, eventually. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I recall going down to their turf farm down at Newtown uh, initially, they were at Marcus Oldham College on some land down there, but went down with John Cotter. He told us he had a new cedar, and, of course, that pricked our interest being a seed company. Mm-hmm. We went down and saw this new brilliant cedar. We, we, have, we have one here. Got yeah. one there? Yeah. So apparently we've still got the barrel at the farm. I haven't seen it right, for a while. Yeah. But, uh, so we went down, this colleague I was talking about earlier, the greenkeeper and I, mm-hmm. went down to see this new seeding technique. And, of course, that opened some doors for us because they were, they were buying lots of seed off us. Mm-hmm. And initially it was Kentucky blue ryegrass, fine fescue, and right. a bit of bent grass. But tall fescue came on the scene in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and it was a bit of a struggle to get the market to accept a broader leaf from okay. those fine leaves yep. and being cut short. You know, five to ten mil lawns in Melbourne were the norm, yep. and the bent grass would, would predominate the lawn along with the fine fescues. Uh, and after that... Initial um, resistance to tall fescue because of the leaf width, uh, people took to it because we marketed it as a more drought tolerant variety. Yeah, and compared to a rye and a and a bent grass, it is. Yeah, but it's certainly not in the it's league. Different though. different kettle of fish now. No, yeah. it's in, not in the same league. But it's because so fescue became the dominant residential cultivar in Melbourne over the next sort of few decades, didn't it? Exactly. So the eighties and nineties, you could say the tall fescue years down in Melbourne. Yeah. And various varieties came along. We, they, they developed dwarf and double dwarf types, so they, they would grew shorter and they were finer in the leaf, but they still had the production rate, the same production rate. Right. Um, and the likes of John Cotter and John Anderson, they realised that they needed to put a bluegrass component in with turf grass mm-hmm. just for the rhizome activity Yep. so that they could harvest it a bit quicker. And then when did the change come? When, when did the poaching happen? Uh, when did you... Uh, well, it, was an, it was an interesting journey. Sorry, poaching is probably not the right word. We'll use it anyway. Go on yeah. with it. <laughs> but I'd, I'd left a, a seed company that I had an interest in um, to go and work with a company that was a major reseller. Mm. And 
I was with them for a, quite a long period and John Cotter at that stage kept saying to me, you should come and work for us. But I wasn't ready to make the jump out of a corporate world into a family business yep. at the time. Mm. And then an opportunity arose when one of the partners of ANCO retired mm -hmm. for me to go and take on that uh, role down at Geelong and Torquay. Right. So I jumped at that opportunity and uh, it's been great ever since for the last 18 years, nearly 19 So you years. started in Geelong, in the Geelong office at the in time? In the Geelong office as the manager and overseeing the Torquay operation. Right. right. Yeah, right. which at the time was uh, equal to the Melbourne side, 300 acres. So what, what year was this? When did you start with ANCO? 2005. 2005, right. Yeah, and it was right on the start of a lot of racetrack uh, re-turfing jobs and, yeah. and redevelopment of racetracks. So let's, let's jump to that now while you mentioned it. So so what tracks have you personally been involved with? I know you, your, your roots run deep with the Victorian racing industry, as we've already spoken about, but from a turf perspective, where did that take you uh, when it comes to racetracks and what sort of projects you've been involved with over the years? Yeah, well, the first one was Caulfield, which, in, which at the time was the second time that ANCO had been involved in resurfacing it. And uh, that was in two. 2005, actually, not long after I started. Right. We got a call from um, the Melbourne Racing Club asking us whether they could use the turf that actually had been set aside for Flemington, um, whether we could use that because Flemington had had their job delayed due to a, a delay in getting approval for a flood wall around the around the whole outside of the racetrack. So uh, that opened up an opportunity for Caulfield to use that turf while they were waiting for approval at Flemington to use that particular block. Um, so they relayed their track in 2005 and that started a long association with the Melbourne Racing Club with myself. Then the following year we did Mornington Racetrack, which is also another Melbourne Racing Club uh, uh, facility. 2007 was the biggest project I've ever been involved with, with uh, was Flemington. Right. Finished up being 150,000 square metres, initially started as 115,000 wow. on the track. So the track total, including the shoots, is 115,000 so the whole track? The whole track. Right. So that was a, a major project. All came out of Torquay, um, out of three different blocks at Torquay. And the resurfacing there, was that straight cool season or was that a Kai Kiyu cool season blend? No, it was a Kai Kiyu base. So we'd start with a Kai Kiyu, um, basically just the runners in the ground, mm. grow, grow the Kai Kiyu, ensure that it's pole free. Mm. Then introduce Kentucky bluegrass, give the Kentucky bluegrass about three or four weeks to germinate and develop, and then oversow it with ryegrass. Right. So it's a period of about an eight, nine months growing period. So what's the purpose of the Kentucky blue if you've already got the kike there? Well, eventually, because of the length of the ryegrass and the bluegrass in a racetrack, mm. so they usually cut it around 100 mil, and by right. the time it's race day, it's around 150 mil. Okay. And the shading properties of those two grasses eventually make the Kai Kiyu redundant. Right. Gotcha. So they just can't handle those yep. shade. Yeah. If you keep it as pure Kai Kiyu, yeah, fine, it'll, yeah. it'll last. Yeah. And the renovation times that are available to a Victorian racetrack, main racetrack, be it Caulfield or Flemington, mm. um, it's always around about that period that's too late in the season yeah, to do a okay. major reno. Yeah. Because Melbourne Cup Carnival, for instance, we only finished that last week. Yeah. They'll be renoing that. They would have started on the Monday, yeah. the Monday of this week, and already we're into mid-November. Yeah, you lose the time. It's quick. only got another four weeks, I think, till the first meeting. Yeah. So they've got to get that ryegrass back up and running. Right. 
and it's a hike. You eventually you take a bit more out each year and a bit more. Will they come and over? Will left. they come and reseed that now? Would they? Will they? They reseed it after Reno. Yeah, and they reseed it again in the autumn, and they constantly repair it with a, an over sow and a divot mix. Yeah, right. So they they brew up a mix of sand and seed in the shed, mm. and during the winter for those winter meetings, they'll pre-germ the seed in a moist sand for right. X number of periods, right. and they calculate how long at each month, say in July, that seed takes longer to germinate than it does in March mm. because of the soil temperatures. Right. So they know exactly how far in advance of the meeting to start pre-germing the seed. It's a fine line, but isn't it? Fine line, yeah. so that you maximise the growth from the day you put it in. And and that the the project you spoke about in two thousand and seven, the the full re-turfing project, was that was that your baby? Essentially, was yeah, it? Was that, that was, sort of handed to you? That was handed to me because John Anderson had left, right? Um, and of course, on the track, we had other staff that that were on the track as well on lay day. Yeah. And looking after the pipes, etc. But as I handled the logistics, I handled the staff and the uh, and the harvesting, etc. And got then to I'd a, go to the track at night. It's got to be a nerve wracking few weeks, doesn't it, for a project of that magnitude? Well, it was actually over two months, right? Because we we did the lawns as well. They did a full reconstruction of Flemington yep. in, in that period. Yeah, um, we had over two hectares of lawns to put in. Yeah, and then when we'd finished the track, I said to the track manager look, you're going to have aerial shots in X Carnival. You've got all these bare areas off to the side. Would you consider turfing those as well? So he did all these batters, mm. the little um, points between the chutes and the track. The whole thing was solid turfed. All small end. rolls? All done with small rolls, one square metre rolls. Did anything go wrong? We had a, a bit of a problem with the unions, for instance. They wanted us to wear – they wanted our layers to be wearing um, steel cap boots and helmets. Right. And, uh, you know, we just, in the meeting, I looked, looked at the sky and said, you, you know something I don't know. And, uh, and on the steel cap boots, there was no way I, they were going to let, let our workers wear runners. Yeah. So I said, how about if I buy them all some steel cap boots and offer them to them, and if they don't want to wear them, would you be comfortable with that? Yeah. And the union uh, delegate ticked off on that. We already had 6,000 metres sitting on the ground on pallets. Yeah. We weren't allowed on the track. So rather than have that cook, I ran into the uh, procurement officer at Flemington and said, you need to get me um, 20 sets of boots in within the next two hours. <laughs> and here's the sizes. And then one of the smart Alex that was laying said, well, we haven't got any socks. <laughs> so, so I went to Kmart and I bought 30 pair of Holeproof Explorer. I'm at the checkout with 30 pair of Holeproof Explorers and the smart Alex checkout lady said to me, your washing machine broken, is it? So <laughs> I've gone back with the 30 pair of socks, the 15 or 18 pair of boots, whatever it was, that Marie from Procurement had got, mm. and away we went. But that was really one of the only hiccups. Apart from um, the photo finish, after we laid the whole track, they realised they hadn't installed the photo finish. And the photo finish, I don't know whether you know, goes from the judge's tower there's a cable runs across to the finish line right. and the mirrors are set up, et cetera, so you get the exact, yeah, you, know, yeah, you know the story. Yeah, yeah. I reckon they get but it wrong sometimes. The wiring, yeah. well, you're probably right because there's a few horses oh, yeah. at Flemington that claim they're Cox Plate Day, I'm telling you. Yeah, Cox well, that Plate was, Day. That was the Valley, so we won't blame Flemington for that. But anyway, yeah. enough about my life. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they had to re-dig up the finish line and then we had to re-turf it. Mm. And between Tim, myself and Ryan, we had to hand water that section 
uh, for the next couple of weeks or so. So we'd be down there with a with a big hose, right, and hand watering that. But apart from that. It all it sounded pretty, sounded pretty good. Trip, yeah. trip to Kmart and 30 pair of socks saved the day. 30 pair of socks. And it was our introduction to how good automatic harvesters were. Yeah. Was this this in, was done with an auto stacker? Auto, the harvest stack from yeah. Trebro. Uh, back in 05, we did that with three um, browsers. Right. So, that, you know, two-man operation yeah, and yeah. every roll of turf was handled at the farm. Yeah. As opposed to we realised we couldn't subject well, ourselves to that one of the, again. That would have been one of the first ones, wouldn't it, back then? First. First auto stackers? Yeah, it was pretty much. If I think Max had one up in uh, at Twinview. Of course he did. Yeah. And we'd been to a, the field days and had a look at uh, a couple of different ones and yeah. that seemed to be the one to get. Yeah. So we bought it for specifically for that Flemington job. Yeah. Because Caulfield uh, was was difficult for to get it down quickly. Uh, we needed to be cutting around about six to 7,000 square metres a day. Right. Plus our normal runs yeah. that we were doing for the retail business. So we'd start in the afternoon on the on the uh, Caulfield track project with the three manual harvesters mm. down the paddocks at the same time, which is quite a sight. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it broke the guys, really. I'd be buying dinners so they'd hang around. <laughs> we, we went to every takeaway in Torquay. Yeah. One night we'd have a roast, next night fish and uh, chips, uh, yeah, just to keep so they didn't have to go home and have dinner. Yeah. They could have it there <laughs> when they'd finished harvesting. Oh, it's, a, it's an intense few weeks. It's a lot of grass to get off the ground. There's a lot of grass, yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. of grass. And so, you've done the track a few more times since, haven't you? We've done Caulfield um, twice since. Yeah. Um, recently, just finished that actually this year. Yeah. Uh, Flemington's now, what's 2007 till now, 15 years old, yeah, 16 right. years old. Right. So, but that's still going well, yeah. that track. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, auto stackers make life a little bit easier now anyway for the boys who save you on takeaway dinners. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, and yeah. and so back back on to ANCO itself. So how's your how are your roles changed at ANCO over the years? It's a fair stint uh, that's coming to an end there now. So you started managing the Torquay Geelong offices and then yeah. and then where did it take you from there? Well, we ident- well I identified with John that we probably were double handling as far as accounts and things were concerned and that was probably a cost uh, saving sitting right in front of us. And that had come about because John Anderson had his side of the operation and John Cotter ran the Melbourne side. Right. And we had an accountant based at Geelong, but we still had all these accountants over on the other side of the bay as well. So we're kind of double handling the account system. And I said to John, look, this probably should all be centralised over your side of the bay. And there was no marketing as such back then. So I took on that role as well for the company, yep. the marketing side of things. And we shifted our account system back to the other side of the bay and we just had a, like a retail outlet in Geelong. So I then shifted back across to Clyde so, and then John had a stroke. Right. Uh, consequently, everybody had to step up into his role as mm. well as their own. Ryan... Um, was only a young fellow at the time. Sasha was young, just into the business, new yep. into the business, and we all grew together. Let's just touch on that for a bit. So for those that, that listen to the podcast regularly, you may have heard this this episode already, but if you haven't, I'd encourage you to check it out. We sat down with Ryan, uh, Ryan Cotter from Anco Turf, and sort of went through this time in the business, which for him was not only a tough time personally, but obviously a, a massive deal for work too. But in your position at that time, how did all that sort of get handled and how did how did you get through it as well as you guys did? Because it's a credit to everyone that it, that things kept going and kept growing through that, a pretty yeah. tricky period. Yeah, 
despite the fact that it was quite traumatic, it was really wonderful to see how the staff reacted. Yeah. The people at ANCO, as just like your family here, it's a family business and everybody just chipped in and did what they had to do. Yeah. Um, everybody said, look, what can I do to help? How, how can my role change so that you can do a bit more in that side of things? Ryan, he'd, he'd come out of the field basically and had to now manage. Yeah. Um, so we all worked together. We all threw our ideas together. We had a flat management system. We made decisions together rather than one person. Yeah. And we got through it all and uh, changed the, the company dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's um, it's a very different company now yeah. to what it was when I started. It's a, it's a great story and a, you know a, a good way for people to listen when when things don't go to plan or things go wrong. How you how you should react and how you should keep things moving. It's a it's a credit to the entire Anco business that that you've got through that like you did. And um, I wanted to touch on one thing just just with your history in the seed industry and now the turf industry. What was the change like for you through the millennium drought? Because uh, that's a that's a common I guess common knowledge in the turf industry that the millennium drought in Victoria was the was the point where it really went from fescues, ryegrasses, cool season grasses into a warm season turf market with buffalo, kaikou, and cooch. So, is that pretty much how you saw it? Um, yeah, at the time? Well, it was a, probably the most dramatic change of my nearly fifty years in the industry was caused by that millennial drought, millennium yep. drought, and. It really started in in 2005. We were already starting to see the dams drop, et cetera. In 2006 and 2007, we knew we were in a bit of trouble. Mm. And then we had severe restrictions imposed upon us. And I was at Geelong at the time and Barwon Water imposed water restrictions for the second time in about three years on the folk of Geelong. And they weren't allowed to water new turf. We managed to get an exemption after we worked out um, – a couple of members of the industry, including the Queensland Industry, uh, Queensland Turf Association, worked out how many square metres were being sold in Queensland. We then worked out how many square metres were being sold in the Geelong region. Because at the time we were we had over ninety percent of the sales in that Geelong region, as as a company. Yeah. So I could calculate how many square metres were being sold into the region, how much water was required on a weekly basis to water those square metres that we'd sold and be able to calculate it against the total daily water use of Barwon Water. Right. And when I presented that number to them, and it's still in my head, it's 0.0058% of the total daily water use of Barwon Water to water new turf in the Geelong region. Right. So when I showed them how insignificant it was, uh, they said, let's give you an exemption. Okay. So away we went in Geelong. Yeah. But the, the stubborn folk back in Melbourne, the Melbourne Water people, wouldn't accept that and it took a lot of lobbying from all the turf industry to get it across the line before we got exemptions. Because pre-warm season varieties, we're talking like our, the ryegrasses and fescues in a hot Melbourne summer, that's a you know, lot of water. A lot of water. Yeah. Uh, if you add up all the sports fields and the racetracks, yeah, et cetera, that yeah. aren't on recycled water, yeah. there was a lot of water being used. Yeah. So then we started showing calculations what would happen if you converted to warm season grasses. Mm-hmm. We had so a couple we, of were you councils. growing warm season at this time? We were growing Kaikuyu. We'd just started growing buffalo right. and we were big Santorana sales. Yep. Uh, right. Yeah. That was a major component of our, our yep. business, Santorana Cooch. And it opened up an opportunity. We went and bought ourselves a line planter. We never had a line planter. Mm. And I think in the first year, because councils were given an exemption to convert ovals 
and government grants also to convert ovals from cool, cool. season to warm season. Yeah. We actually did 80 ovals in that first year with a lime plant. Yeah, hell. Okay. And it snowballed for three years. Um, and the government grants were coming through to convert. Clubs were getting better facilities, reconstruction mm. of ovals, still better draining uh, mm. facilities that didn't wear out as much. Yeah. So it was a really good time for us. We went from 80% retail sales to only 50% because the rest was commercial business. Yeah, right. Because that, that really stands Anko's name as a sports turf. Yes, you know. that period. Yeah. 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 It was hadn't been uh, that big a part of our business until then. Yeah, right. No, that, okay. Mm. So you started plant, planting and turfing a lot of Santa Ana and Kike ovals around Melbourne and from from there, I guess the next so that was a massive change in terms of species and cultivar uh, yeah. for not just Anko but for the entire Victorian turf industry. We're at cool season, warm season. I guess the last few years has probably been the second big change with cultivar there, hasn't it? With with Tiff Tough, yeah, absolutely. Compared to Santa Ana, for you. Santa Ana was a yardstick, and certain you used the word before certain doyens within the industry. <laughs> Thank you, uh, particularly the sports <laughs> turf industry. Uh, they were they were fanatics about Santa Ana. Yeah, particularly one Les Bidet in South Australia, who's the, who's the king of cricket wickets. Yep. He loves Santa Ana, and of course, everybody else loves Santa Ana. Les says it's the right thing to use, so everybody used it. And we weren't sure about Tiff Tough in um, cricket wickets because the Americans had told us it wasn't great at low cutting heights. Mm-hmm. So we put it into a few places. I put it into a cricket wicket in Aberfeldy in Melbourne. Um, and at three, three to five mil, handled it fine. Yeah, right. So yeah. away that went in the sports turf industry, but also as a solid turf on ovals, it's yeah. become uh, become a bit of a, a go-to grass now. It's it's suited very well to the Vic climate, I feel, Tiff, because it's it's an aggressive grass, and sometimes if you get too far north where you're too hot and too humid, it can be too much. But yeah. I, th- I think in Victoria, from what we've seen, uh, both in case studies and also sales-wise, it's a, it's a pretty perfect grass for that market, isn't it? Oh, it's great grass. It, we probably see it more than you would here. Um, our, our cold winters, Santa Rana can turn white on, and a really bad one if you get a lot of frost. But the Tiff Tough just holds colour. Yeah. But the big difference we see is recovery from um, uh, winter damage. Yeah. And also uh, things like pitch marks and um, bowlers' foot marks, etc. they'll fill over quicker with the Tiff Tough than yeah. it does with the Santa Rana. Yeah. It's showing the innovation and the work we put into R&D works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've seen it over a lot of years, yeah. uh, particularly with seed, because seed's massive in R&D and new strains and new cultivars. It's it's probably easier to introduce a new seed than it is to introduce a new turf oh, variety. Far easier. Um, you do it regularly, I think, in the seed industry, don't they, new, yeah. new strains? And and if you go back in history, we've gone full circle in Melbourne. If you walk, walk around the inner suburbs of Melbourne, a lot of the terraced houses, um, a lot of shade in those, Backyards, double-storey terraced houses built in the late 1800s, mid-1800s. Um, there's buffalo grass in those. So the suburbs of Ascotvale, Mooney Ponds, Carlton, Park, Parkville, They've the, you can go around and find the original buffalo grasses. Oh, the old-style old buffalo stuff. Right. And a company called FH Brunning, they've still got all their journals and horticultural things that they produced back in the 20s and 30s. And I found one from 1905, I think it is, and they were selling uh, what they call runners, buffalo grass runners, for three shillings and si- three shillings and sixpence for a bushel. So a bushel would <laughs> be like a, a chaff yeah, bag yeah. full of runners. So it, it pricked my uh, thought process on, 
you know, why those homes in in Melbourne, where do they get the buffalo from, was from this company, FH Brunning. They'd been selling it since the early 1900s. There you go. And that was going into these homes that were shaded. Yeah. Mm. And I, I suppose um, the new developments are replicating that in a lot of ways too, aren't they? Small blocks, big houses. Um, shade's becoming another factor uh, with, with modern-day development, I guess, for turf grass, isn't it? We sell the Sawalda into those markets because everybody's got shade now. Yeah. Gone is the uh, 200 square metre backyard that you can have a cooch grass yeah. lawn. They just don't have them now Yeah, but, in and the new developments. The, the other full circle thing that's coming too is you mentioned before with ryegrass back in the day, shortcut lawns, yeah. shortcut manicured lawns. With Tiff Tuff and in the northern states with zoysia grass, they're coming back into, into fashion as well. Yes. Uh, cylinder mowers, like cylinder mowers were a thing back in the whenever, I don't know. 80s, 70s, whatever well, they were. when I was a kid. When we, you were a kid. Had, everybody had a push mower. Yeah, and they went out of the industry for years and years with the development of, of petrol and, and battery rotary mowers, but now they're coming back in. Yes. Cylinder mowers with these new cultivars are getting more and more popular, so it's funny how things come around. Yeah, it is. It, everybody, it's a new wave of, of lawn enthusiasts coming through that we haven't seen before. Yeah. I just gave my Rover 45 to a young neighbour across the road. Yeah, I there can you always go. get it back if I need it, but... <laughs> yeah. He's, he's gone nuts on his tiff tough lawn and he, he wants to cut it short. He said to me, how, how can I get this looking better? I said, well, you need a cylinder mower. And he just said, oh, I can't afford one of those. I said, there's one in the shed. Come and get it. Yeah. So he's right into it and I think he's uh, he's not on his own. There's a lot of them oh, out there There's plenty now. of them. There's plenty of them. So, and um, as you said, they need that. That finer cut turf. Yeah, and I suppose with the way the industry went, they probably couldn't get it because buffalo grass was so dominant for so long yeah. and you can't really do it very well with Sawalter or with buffalo. But now with these new cultivars, it's great to see. Yes. Um, manicured lawns and people cutting stripes. And a lot of people doing um, cooch oversows now too. Yeah. Um, it, a lot of pe- people have always done it, but a lot of people in the residential market, yeah. uh, which was which was not a thing. As well, that's, that's another topic altogether. If we, if we go back to the sort of early 90s, um, everybody was starting to use cooch grasses in sports ovals, mm. etc. pre the drought. Yeah. And the seed industry um, just just through innovation thought, well, you know, we're going to lose a lot of sales here. Yeah. How do we keep our seed sales? We looked to America, uh, Florida, Georgia, those states, they were all over-sowing their golf courses right. with ryegrass. So we started uh, introducing over-sowing and how to go about it. Right. Doing Places like um, Lang Park in Queensland and mm. uh, North Sydney Oval, and we went around selling that concept, and we started selling tons and tons of fine leaf ryegrass as a way to sell seed markets. into a warm season converted market. Yeah, yeah. it's genius. Yeah. But back then, we didn't have the chemicals to eradicate it. Whereas now, we got some great chemicals to yeah. just nuke it out straight yep. away, just spray it out, and carry on. Start yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, just sort of finishing off now with, with the news of, of your incoming retirement. So how, how many years total did you say? 50. In January, it'll be 50. 50. But you're stopping yeah. before. What are you doing? Just go through to January and raise a bat. Raise a bat. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, those days are gone. And, Worrying um, about uh, raising the bat and getting a 50. And um, you said, I was talking to you last night over dinner and you were talking about um, for a nice surprise retirement party for you. Why don't you oh, go that, that quickly? Was, yeah, or well, going back a couple of weeks ago, uh, Anko traditionally have a, a Christmas party, but they don't always have it in the month of December. Sometimes we'll have it in July. Right. But this year, about six months ago, Sasha had planned one for October. Mm-hmm. So uh, along we're going, Denise and I, to last work Christmas party. Mm-hmm. 
well, I thought that's what I was going to. It yeah. turned out to be a surprise retirement party uh, that Sasha and my wife had been putting together and uh, a couple of others from the office. Yeah. And they put this surprise party for on for us at Crown Casino and they invited a lot of the people from the industry from my way back past, mm-hmm. including one of the first guys uh, I ever worked with right. as a junior, office yeah. uh, junior. Um, he did a speech about the first 18 years and then another person from that chemical company, fertiliser company I was with for 10 years. Uh, they came along. There was um, people from all different facets of the industry, yeah. off, et cetera, there that had been great clients or great friends along the way, plus all of our own staff. Yeah. And they managed to keep it a secret from me. I, I had no idea. So, yeah, it was a great, great finish, even yeah. though I've still got a few weeks to go. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's, it's it's a great gesture, but it's a well deserved one too. Uh, I'd imagine it's been a well, thanks. It's been a long ride, and and post turf, um, yeah. What's what's life going to be like for Bruce when it comes time? You, you're going to get that question yeah. when it comes your time. It's yeah. the most asked question. Everybody says, "What are your plans?" Yeah. And you know, every time I've had a slightly different answer, but the first one is make sure I'm around to keep planning. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So try and live as long as I can, of course. Yeah. But uh, I've had some hobbies that I haven't done for maybe 10, 20 years, mm. so I'll take those on. Mm-hmm. They include sort of fishing. I'm an avid cyclist, so I'll probably mm-hmm. do a bit more of that, maybe take on some bigger challenges mm-hmm. with that, get back into doing a bit more photography, which I yeah. – uh, yeah. your your people are yeah. exceptional at. Yeah. I'm not, but I, I look forward to – um, perhaps cataloguing the thousands of photos of turf photos I've got, yeah, and pass those on to whoever wants them, yeah. And of course, some travel, yeah, great. Um, Denise and I and our and our border collie yeah. is our, our number one family member yeah. basically these days, yeah. apart from our son. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think he takes Preston and over the son these days, and and the son knows that. Um, He's got to go everywhere with us. So yeah, right. it'll mainly be Australia, but yeah. we'll do a couple of overseas things, perhaps cycling related. You've got a lot of exciting things to look forward to then, and I think um, I think people are going to really enjoy listening to this. It's, it's a great story. Um, it's, a, it's a great career, um, and it's um, sad that it's coming to an end, but in a way it's, a, it's great to see you go on and enjoy enjoy some other things in life. So um, thanks for coming on today. It was, it was really good talking to you, and it's been great working with you over the past was it, 10 years, I'd, I'd yeah. guess you nearly say, for, for, for me and you. And Bruce, actually, um, I'm a rugby league guy and um, obviously Bruce being a Victorian's an AFL guy and I, Bruce actually convinced me to start supporting Essendon and it's been a miserable experience ever since. So <laughs> appreciate that, Bruce. Well, but, um, I kind of apologise for it, but <laughs> stick with us, Joe. I'll stick, stick with, with us. You. you convinced me. You're a very convincing person at the time and um, – it's been um, – I don't think they've made the final since I started. They haven't. Perhaps it's you, Joe. It's me. <laughs> I might have to jump ships. It's my fault. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But, um, but thanks for coming on. It's a great story and congrats on, on such an awesome career. Thanks, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Well done, Bruce. Thanks, Very mate. Good. I couldn't get you to shut up. That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>